We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey guys, this is Ian Happ from the Chicago Cubs. I'm excited to announce that my show, The Compound, is now part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Join me and my teammates, Dakota Meckis and Zach Short. This week, we welcome Cubs first baseman, World Series champion, Anthony Rizzo to The Compound. Check it out. Subscribe. The Compound on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, joined by my co-host, Nick Filato. Today, we've got a special show for you. My favorite show we've recorded in quite some time. We're carrying on with our positional breakdown of the roster, and we've stopped at the most important one. That's the quarterback position, and we'll be evaluating Daniel Jones today. We're not going to dive too deep into the other quarterbacks. This is a Daniel Jones show because... God forbid if there's an injury to Daniel Jones, I don't think the Giants are going quite anywhere with Colt McCoy, Alex Tanney, or Cooper Rush. So today, to help us break down Daniel Jones, we're bringing on Mark Schofield. We'll talk a little bit about his background as a quarterback guru. Really the most exciting guest I think we've ever had on this show. But before we do any of that, Nick, want to get a little update. Let's do another quarantine update. The listeners of the show have appreciated the quarantine update, so I want to hear what's going on since we last spoke uh, almost a week ago. So still no update on the Marshall Thundering Herd. I haven't I haven't played the game, okay? I've been uh, doing a lot of film stuff for SI and Big Blue View, so I haven't had the time. But I have had the time to go work on my tennis game, Dan. And I'm starting to get that serve down. I'm starting to hit that deep corner. I'm starting to put it next to the midline. I'm starting to get kind of proud. But I am entirely inconsistent with it. So one time I can nail it and it could be an ace. The next time I'm sending that thing flying. So if you and I ever get a chance to play tennis together, you got to help me with these mechanics, man. Because I feel like, you know, a quarterback who has raw potential because of athletic ability, but cannot put it all together because I haven't had the right coach yet. 
Yeah, I'm definitely there for you, Nick. I will I will give you some important tips. And it's interesting you you bring up raw athletic ability, you know, all of that when it comes to tennis. But I think this kind of gets lost on some people. And my cousin Ari is actually a perfect example, a guy who, you know, unbelievable athlete was uh, you know, a division one soccer player for Syracuse, one of the best high school soccer players in New Jersey, credible, incredibly athletic person, probably the most athletic person in our family, at least natural athleticism speaking. But he thought he fought wrongly thought that he could beat my mom in tennis after not really playing tennis at all his whole life, just based on pure athleticism, the ability to run down balls. So finally, after talking about it for a while, and my mom is a excellent tennis player, uh, you know, probably 4.0 for a female, especially her age. She plays multiple times per week. She plays all the time. And he finally, they finally got in the court that one time after all the crap that he talked and she beat him and she was the better player. So I think it's a sport that unfortunately for you and me, when it comes to golf, as I'm trying to learn that sport skill and technical ability is extremely important. So practice makes perfect, Nick, don't give up on it. Just keep practicing. And I'll give you a few tips that you can kind of use to change your strokes and change your serving motion that if you, you know, repeat, you'll definitely get better. I, that's that's what I need, man. You know, because I go up and I play against my girlfriend sometimes, and she's been playing tennis much longer than me, so she'll beat me a lot, and I'll beat her a lot just because, like, on, when I am consistent, I'm I'm showing a lot of strides of you know being really pretty good at this, but the consistency is just so whack. It's just, yeah, it's out of control. It's all repetition. It's all timing. Um, as far as I go, a little update in my life from a quarantine standpoint. Uh, the, the Wisconsin Badgers have entered their second or their third season. I've been playing this game at a disgusting rate, really. It's just a pure addiction at this point, uh, to NCAA football 12 playing multiple hours uh, a day, uh, you know, simming a little bit. I had to start simming a little bit, uh, to be completely honest. Uh, what I do is I play the game and if I'm up by two touchdowns in the second half, I start simming. I think that's a good way to kind of cut the game a little bit short. Um, still a little bit bitter over the fact that Dan Schneier, the second did not commit to Wisconsin. He went to OU. Uh, I really was disappointing. Haven't created a player since, but you know, my second season went a little better than the first. I made the national title game after a really gross big 10 championship where I beat Michigan state 1910 that, that included a safety. And I just got my, my butt completely kicked by Stanford of all teams in the national championship. So I'm back to the drawing board for season three. Um, in, in other news, uh, we've got a new development in the family, in the Schneier family, in the Schneier Schneider Deutschmeister family. That's my extended family to the cousins. My 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 nat my niece uh, Ryan is is an up and coming magician. She Facetimed me the other day, showed off about five tricks, credible tricks. I was really excited. And then Jordan, uh, my my younger niece, uh, this is actually all, a shout out to Ari Schneider, who was mentioned earlier for being you know a little bit of a bragger when it came to what he thought his tennis skills would be, but he's obviously raised some really awesome kids. And then Jordan jumped on, showed a little bit off. She had to get, she had to get in the mix a little bit there, but keep an eye on Ryan Schneider. She's coming up as a young magician in, in, in this world. So, so, so keep an eye on her. She'll, she'll be on Twitter soon. I'm going to create a Twitter page and, and maybe an Instagram for her as well. Speaking of Instagram, by that, the way, Nick. That, uh, speaking of Instagram, I don't want to step on this, but I do. So, okay. Okay, something to add. I think that's incredible, man. Magicians have always kind of blown my mind because I'm somebody who I, I like to think like everything through thoroughly. And if if and usually if you know if a half-assed magician, I can be like, okay, I can see like where you're coming from. Like well, I'm not a dumbass, but then I'll go up against someone who's really good and really clever, and I'll be like, crap, man, I have absolutely no idea what this guy did. Like I, I went and I saw a David Copperfield show out in Vegas, and some of the stuff he did, I was like, okay, that's that's BS, whatever. But there are some things where I just I have no idea how he was able to like get things into a position 
without all of us seeing it. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, how did you put that 500 pound thing right there with none of us seeing it? And that, those are just things that he was able to do. And I, I don't like, I don't like being fooled. So magicians have always, uh, you know, when they get me, they get me and it pisses me off. Well, Ryan got me more than a few times, uh, in her, in her first set of tricks. So kudos to Ryan Schneider. She's coming up in this world, young magician in the game. But as far as Instagram goes, before I create a page for young Ryan, the magician, we have a page already out there. It's called the NY Big Blue Banter. N-Y-B-I-G-B-L-U-E Banter. Now, a lot of you have done an excellent job and we really appreciate it of downloading the podcast, subscribing to the podcast, rating and reviewing it. If you haven't, please do that on iTunes. Just give us that one uh, you know, benefit. Give us that one uh, – I guess that's our one request. But also do us a favor. We're still looking to grow this Instagram page. It still needs a few more followers than it currently has. So please, if you do use Instagram daily or even once a week or even – rarely just follow that ny big blue banter page on instagram we'll be posting our shows there we have clips from the show we have other engagements that go up on instagram so it's it's an overall really good time absolute excellent time all right nick now we're going to get to the actual show here and that means we're going to bring on mark schofield who i'm extremely excited for quarterback guru a guy who i live and die on his quarterback takes i really do truly believe that and that's the truth of it I'm really excited to get him on the show. What what do you know about Mark, and are you as excited as I am? Oh, I'm incredibly pumped. Mark and I, we go back a while. So my first time attending the Senior Bowl was back in 2017 with the Scouting Academy. And I told Dan Hatman, who's the director of the Scouting Academy, you know, hey, I'm looking to get into writing a little bit as well as scouting. And he directed me to Mark Schofield. So I got to meet Schofield and, you know, he was just a very nice guy. We ended up connecting and we ended up becoming pretty good friends throughout the last couple of years. You know, we played video games together and stuff like that. I used to play PUBG a lot. And when it comes to his quarterback takes, I mean, there's no one else that I trust more than him. He knows so much more about that position than I do because he studies that position more so than any other position. And he's just been doing it for several years. He used to be a lawyer and he doesn't do that anymore. He does this full time now. So he's incredibly serious about evaluating the quarterback position. And he, he can just talk your ear off about it, but he will teach you so much about the position. We used to write together at Inside the Pylon, and he kind of started that website of just a bunch of uh, guys looking to get into writing. And a lot of people in the sports media industry kind of use that website to propel themselves onto greener pastures, if you say. Someone like me, someone like John Ledyard, who used to write there, a lot of people that you see on Twitter who have uh, gone through there, a lot of great minds, and it was all started from Mark Schofield, his fandom for the Patriots, and really his fandom for the quarterback position. So he's just an excellent listen when it comes to talking about young quarterbacks, old quarterbacks, all types of quarterbacks. So let's listen to him talk about our quarterback, Daniel Jones. Yeah, no doubt, Nick. And, and I think you guys have heard me on this podcast before say, I hate when people throw out rankings or tell me Daniel Jones is bad or this guy's better than this guy, because I believe that for the most part, people don't have the time to evaluate the all 22 on every single quarterback in the NFL. They're not watching game tape of all 32 each week. So it's really hard to kind of grade these guys in comparison to others when you're not really watching them all. You're just seeing a couple clips. You're reading about, you know, advanced analytics on the guy or whatnot, any stat that you can pull. So I think out of all the people I've followed who grade and analyze this position, Mark is the one who watches the most film on this position league wide. All the all these guys who are playing the position, starting the position for multiple games, he's watching them all the time. And he's really based on that, I think he really has an excellent outlook and overall perspective. So without further ado, let's welcome in Mark Schofield on the show. 
All right, Mark, I'm going to start you off here. For me, and you can tell me if you're if this is wrong or you see it differently, I think Daniel Jones is a good example of someone who passed the eye test but graded out poorly when it comes to the advanced analytics used to kind of evaluate the quarterback position, and we're seeing them pop up uh, more and more now. So my question is a bit more of kind of a 30,000-foot view question. Where do you stand kind of on advanced analytics as they apply to grading the quarterback position as a whole? And are there maybe individual ones that stand out to you more as good or bad or anything along those lines? Yeah, Dad, it's it's a fascinating question. And I think you're right in the sense that when it comes to Daniel Jones, you know, for many, and I had put myself in this category, there were there was hesitation with Daniel Jones. I mean, we can be frank about it. And I, I think Jones sort of looked the part at Duke checked a lot of the boxes, but there was some hesitancy in myself and others and seeing him both on film and in some, you know, metrics and analytics areas. And a number that I often come back to with Daniel Jones is, you know, Bryce Rossler, who does work for Sports Info Solutions, um, put together a sort of pre-draft scouting report on Daniel Jones and highlighted the fact that 72% of his snaps his last year at Duke were zero and one step drops in the pocket, which means it's a lot of predetermined stuff, a lot of one read concepts. And so when you see numbers like that, you have to wonder about an ability of the quarterback to work through progression reads, to run a pro style offense, whatever we want to assume that to be in today's NFL. And so I think there are things that you can highlight when it comes to quarterbacks and with Daniel Jones in, in particular that add to the information bucket you have when you do an evaluation on a player. And, you know, I'm more of a dinosaur. Let's put it that way. I'm 43. I'm a man. I'm 43. <laughs> and you know, I, I've been slow to sort of the analytics revolution that's underway, but I do think that the more information you have, the better, particularly for those of us that are on the outside doing this. We don't have the chance absent, you know, a podium session at the senior bowl or at the combine or something like that to talk to these guys. We don't certainly get to sit in the room and watch film with these guys. And so the more information we have at our fingertips, the better. I, I think that there are, you know, when it comes to scouting quarterbacks, there are numbers that I always look at. I pay particular attention to what they do, you know, fourth quarter, third downs and in the red zone, you know, your general completion percentage, touchdowns, interceptions, things like that. You want to get deeper into yards per attempt, adjusted net yards per attempt, things like that. I think those are also beneficial. And when you start looking at guys in the pros, you know, some of the advancements we've seen in, say, expected points added, completion percentage above expectations. I know those are newer statistics and they're a bit noisy at times, but I think those are adding some information to the whole discussion that I think is beneficial. But with respect to Daniel Jones, I do think that he looked the part. There was hesitancy because of that, you know, one to zero step drop number and others that left people a little bit worried about him. But he showed last season that the guy did belong. He outplayed expectations. And I think most people would admit that. I couldn't agree more. He definitely outplayed expectations. And a lot of what Pat Shermer, that's why Dan and I, we uh, well, we weren't recording at the time together, but we felt uh, Daniel Jones was drafted by Pat Shermer that he would be kind of a seamless transition to his offense because there are a lot of those quick reads, simple concepts and things like that. But now he's obviously transitioning to a different offense, which we will get into in a little bit. But one other thing that stood out to me from Jones' rookie season was his aggressiveness when it came to attacking man coverage. He had no problem throwing at a wide receiver who created minimal separation and giving him a chance to win a contested catch situation. And we've heard NFL Films legend Greg Cassell talked this up as a plus, saying how important it is in today's NFL to, for ha to have these quarterbacks be aggressive against man-to-man. -man. Do you also see this as a plus or something that he needs to do a little bit less of? 
Yeah, look, I, I think, Nick, that Greg Cassell, obviously, the guy is a legend, but he's exactly right. You see so much man coverage in the National Football League today that you have to have that willingness to be aggressive. You have to have that ability to, if a guy's going to step on a defender to make that throw, to throw into tight windows. And we were just talking about the sort of analytics revolution, right? Well, next-gen stats over at NFL.com, they track aggressiveness, which is the quarterback's willingness to make throws into tight windows. And Matthew Stafford had the most, the highest percentage of aggressive aggressive throws, 23.4% of his, then Dwayne Haskins, then Daniel Jones at 22.4. So there's an example of a statistic that sort of bears out what we're all seeing on film. And it is critically important because we've seen over the past couple of years what offenses can look like when they make the switch from a conservative passer to an aggressive passer. And the Kansas City Chiefs are that prime example. They reached a sort of ceiling as a franchise, as an offense under Alex Smith, who even in his last year as a starter at Kansas City got a little bit more aggressive. They still couldn't quite get over that hump. Then Patrick Mahomes comes in, obviously a guy that's known for that sort of aggressive nature, and they make that sort of leap under Mahomes and they obviously just want a Super Bowl. And so you need a quarterback that's going to play the position without fear, because if you design up a play that's, you know, you get covered too, you want to take that whole shot along the sideline, which can be intimidating at times, particularly for young quarterbacks, but you have to make it when you get it and you shy away from those throws, it's going to be easier for a defense to defend you. And it's going to be much more harder for us to be for the offense to be successful. And your offensive coordinator or head coach, whoever's calling the plays, is going to start shying away from giving you those opportunities. And so you need to be aggressive. And that's one good thing that we saw from Jones, among some other good things that stood out last year. Yeah, Mark, I think you hit it nail on the head. And it's really interesting to me because I actually saw uh, somebody, Ben, ben Solik, Benjamin Solik, who's also, uh, you know, who's a draft evaluator and who does a lot of great work on prospects, tweeted out something funny. It was a meme, basically, Daniel Jones versus man coverage, Daniel v- Jones versus zone coverage. And it was like, he's the, big, he's the big bad wolf against man coverage. But then against zone, it's like he's lost. And it's interesting to me because you talk about that aggressiveness against man coverage. And I agree. I thought that was one of the best things he showed me on tape. But then you apply it to how he fared against zone coverage where the numbers are way down, and it's almost like either he's not aggressive enough there or he's just not seeing it. And a lot of what I've been reading lately and, you know, from evaluating it, and I try to learn (laughs) through my process, I try to get better and better at evaluating these quarterbacks, but I'm nowhere near the level of guys like yourself. So that's why we are excited to bring you on because you can answer these questions for us. And to me, it's almost as if he's not reading zone nearly as well as man. And that kind of leads to my next question, which is one thing that I felt like Jones had a tendency to do. And you mentioned it briefly in the intro. Maybe you can expand on it at Duke. And then it kind of carried over to his rookie season was to kind of just trust too much what he saw pre-snap and make these predetermined reads. He would have a plan. Don't get me wrong, but when he expected what, but when what he expected to see pre-snap wasn't there, and then Plan B and C were thrown off based on that, it felt like he held the ball for too long, he forced it too long, he, uh, he forced a pass, or he would drift with his feet and his footwork would get off. And to me, this is currently the biggest knock on Jones. I think the processing is so important at the quarterback position. For me, it's honestly maybe the most important trade. It allows you to stay on time, um, stay in rhythm. Obviously, ball placement is huge for me as well, but. Without without you know the ability to stay to to process mentally post snap and stay on time the ball placement doesn't matter much so did you also see this tendency kind of carry over from Duke and is this something you think he can fix sooner or later or could it potentially be an Achilles flaw for him in his career? 
Well, Dan, I think first off, you know, the process and speed of the quarterback position, it's such a critical component of playing the position well, of adjusting to life as an NFL quarterback, you know, adjusting to life as a guy that's making that leap from the college game to the pro game. And so trying to speed that up or to phrase it a different way, trying to get the game to slow down for you is critical. And, you know, you can't play quarterback at a high level if you can't diagnose, decipher, then decide, you know, the sort of the three D's of quarterback, not the five D's of dodgeball. Okay. (laughs) And so for, for Daniel Jones, you know, there was one play in his final year at Duke, a play against Virginia, where he had that sort of Ohio concept to the left side where you've got the go and then the out route from the slot receiver. And he's pre-snap. He's expecting to throw these, the out route to the slot because things look like the go routes can be capped, but then they jumped the, out route from the slot from the boundary corner and so he adjusts on the fly and throws the whole shot for a touchdown that's the sort of adjustment to a defense that's rolling their coverage at the snap that you need to see from a young quarterback but that's a simplified thing now when you get into the national football league and you're getting complex safety rotations you're seeing invert cover two you're seeing things that you haven't seen before and they're being done by athletes that are nfl players like it's one thing when you know, BC's role in their safeties at the snap. It's going to be, you know, it's not going to be as fluid, as crisp, as disguised as, you know, what you're going to see from the Philadelphia Eagles on a Sunday night. And so when quarterbacks get to see that zone coverage and get to see those rotated safeties and those different looks that they're seeing for the first time, it's a massive adjustment. And so I'm not surprised that it seems like Jones is more effective against man coverage than zone coverage. I think a lot of younger quarterbacks, when they get man coverage, they know, okay, well, it's a little bit easier as opposed to trying to diagnose some sort of complex zone rotations. And so that's one, you know, thing where as Jones becomes more experienced, he gets more games under his belt, I think he's going to be better at it. But getting to that sort of pre-snap read part, it's where he's going to have a sort of steeper development curve than other quarterbacks, you know, because when you are in that offense, like he was at Duke where 72% of your throws are that zero or one step drop. That means you could safely say that more than half of the time he knew where he was going with the football before the ball was snapped. And it wasn't because of anything that the defense had done or anything they had done motion wise or anything. It was just, look, if you get this look, you're throwing the out. If you get this look, you're throwing the swing. Like it's just, that's what the offense was. And so he's going to face that sort of steeper climb. It's not impossible, you know, but it will be part of the extra learning curve. And we can't overstate the fact that he's now going to be playing for his third offensive coordinator in three years. And he's going to be learning the new offense in the time of a global pandemic when we don't have OTAs and minicamp and things like that. And, and the first three games, three games go against the Bears defense, the yep. Steelers defense, the 49ers defense. <laughs> yeah, good luck, Dan. I mean, that, that's that's going to be tough. Um, so that, that's kind of like the perfect storm of getting your year two off to a difficult start. So those are sort of like the problems that he faces going into 2020. And, you know, as we said at the outset here, Process and speed is so critical to the position. It's the reason why guys like Brady and Breeze can play at such an elite level to the, this point in their career. I mean, watch Drew Breeze run that Saints offense sometimes. He is, I've called him before, like a computer on the field. Like, yeah. <laughs> you see safety rotations, you see spun safety looks, and it doesn't phase him. Conversely, watch Tom Brady sometimes. If you get a chance, we still got all 22 game passes still free till the end of July. Watch Patriots against Bills games because there you will see 
how the Buffalo Bills are able to spin their safeties, Micah Hyde, Jordan Poyer, so effectively to confuse Tom Brady. You'll see why that stuff matters. And so that's the next evolution for a young quarterback is being able to decipher that stuff with that process and speed. And Jones faces a bit of a steeper climb, but he can still do it. And that throw he had, look it up against Virginia, that Ohio route touchdown along the left sideline. That's an example of him doing just that. There is no shortage of action going on at our exclusive partners, betonline.ag. Sports are slowly making their way back, and BetOnline is leading the way with the best odds and lines for all UFC, boxing, NASCAR, and soccer matches. And if you need even more, they have simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC simulations all day, every day, live on their website. Looking for something else other than sports? BetOnline has hundreds of casino games, poker tournaments, and prop bets to check out. Visit BetOnline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, for a free welcome bonus. That's one word, BLUEWIRE. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. It definitely seemed like uh, Daniel Jones, just on a lot of his interceptions, it mostly came against zone coverage. And he did seem to, I don't want to say panic in the pocket, but just look a little bit lost, took him a little bit long. And by the time he threw the football, it was either undercut by a safety or something like that. I mean, I went through before this podcast and charted some of the interceptions and it seemed like only a Three of them were against man coverage and two of them were with safeties coming down in that man coverage. So it's definitely something I feel like as well, Mark, that he's definitely going to have to get better at. But I wanted to touch on something else, and that's his arm strength. How do you feel about that? We know that the arm talent is there, evidenced by you know some of the touchdowns that he's thrown to Tate, Shepard, and Slayton last season. We've seen him throw well from different angles and when his feet weren't set, but Late in the year and some of these games, especially against Philadelphia, it's coming up in my mind. Sometimes the balls would just die in the wind. Do you think this is a problem that will plague him his whole career or do you think he can kind of overcome this? I think he can kind of overcome it, Nick. And I also think that, you know, he did have the injury that sidelined him for a couple of games. But, you know, I always want to sort of remind people, you know, when you talk about rookie quarterbacks or rookies in general, you know, when you get to the end of that 16-game season, for a lot of these players, it's the first time they've played 16 games. I mean, even if you go to the, to the playoffs and you go to the national championship game, you talk about playing maybe 15 games. But for most of these guys, Daniel Jones included, you're not playing that many games in a season. That's one thing to keep in mind. The other thing to keep in mind is, let's not forget, you go from your bowl game to, in Jones's case, the senior bowl, then it's combine prep, then it's draft prep and getting ready for the draft, and then it's rookie OTAs and rookie minicamp and OTAs and all this stuff. You don't get a chance until your rookie season is over to really catch your breath. And so a lot of these guys are just exhausted. You know, they're broken down. They're worn down. The pre-draft process is the world's longest and strangest job interview. And so I really think that's part of the reason you see a lot of players, particularly at the quarterback position, have that sort of year two leap. It's because they finally get a chance to have an offseason, you know, and obviously this offseason is different than most. But still, you know, so I think there might have been some wear and tear on his arm, among other things, you know, when you get to that point in the season. You know, when when I saw Jones make that first start against Tampa Bay, some of his other games during the season, you know, even into the preseason, some of his throws in that game against the Bengals, for example, or lest we forget his, you know, stellar debut against the Jets where he went five for five in that opening drive. And everybody, myself included, had to kind of shut up on the timeline for a while because we had spent three months like crushing the kid in the pick. And here, oh, here, whoa, OK, where'd that come from? Um, 
he looked like he had every bit the you know arm talent to play at a high level in this league. And so I, I think there might have been some wear and tear. Uh, I think he just might have gotten you know exhausted by the end of the season. I think the arm strength is not an issue that concerns me. You know, if we see this season some of those same issues, Nick, we see the ball start to die on him. We see him struggle to throw in the elements, to throw in wind and things like that. Then I'll start to worry about it. But sitting here right now, you know, end of June, I'm not that concerned. I think he's got more than enough arm to be successful in this league. Yeah, and it's interesting, Mark, because you talked and we talked about, you know, the transition from him, uh, the transition with him from Duke's offense, like where you said a lot of these passes were predetermined before the snap, not necessarily so much based on what the defense is showing. Um, And again, a lot of what he did at Duke was from the shotgun. Almost all of his snaps, I believe, were from the shotgun and not under center. So transitioning this forward last season, and I know quarterback rating isn't obviously the best metric to use, but just bear with me. He was the highest graded quarterback, uh, quarterback rating wise at a shotgun versus complete opposite when he was under center, one of the lowest graded quarterbacks in the NFL. So my question for you would be, is this another massive hurdle for him? And how can the Giants game plan around this? Because does what he do fit what Jason Garrett typically wants to do in the passing game? You know, I mean, we know from watching Garrett during his time with the Cowboys as their coordinator, it's a Coriel-based offense. So with that in mind, where does Daniel Jones, where does this aspect of Daniel Jones' game, as in his ability to perform much better out of the shotgun uh, than under center, fit in with what Garrett wants to do? It's a fascinating thing to think about, Dan, because, you know, I think the league is starting to sort of figure out that they need to tailor what they do schematically, offensively, defensively, whatever, to their players and not try to force their players to be something they're not. You know, I, I think, you know, four or five years ago when I started doing this, we saw more examples of guys coming out of the college game and, you know, their offensive staff being like, oh, you know, you ran – a spread offense at college. That's fantastic. You're going to line up under center 95% of the time now. Like, we're going to make you do what we want to do. Now it seems like teams are just saying, you ran a, what did you run in college? You ran the air raid? I guess we're going to start installing some mesh stuff because if that's what you're familiar with, right. that's what we're going to run. And so I think we're seeing this trend towards getting guys running concepts that they're familiar with because – Remember, there's no bigger competitive advantage right now than the phrase we all hear, rookie quarterback on his rookie deal, right? You win when they're cheap, then when you have to pay them, you hope that they're good enough that they are worth that big contract. And in Patrick Mahomes' case, he is. In Jared Goff's case, maybe he wasn't. In Mitchell Trubisky's case, he certainly wasn't. So, <laughs> you know, there you go. You know, with how I think that, the, that Jason Garrett's going to sort of use – you know, Daniel Jones, we all know Coriel system, it's vertical passing based offense, you know, but you dig into recent Cowboys playbooks, you're seeing more and more offenses really sort of blend together. You know, I think the days of a pure West Coast versus a pure air raid versus a pure Coriel system are kind of going away. You know, as more and more teams look around and see concepts that are working, I mean, the Patriots, for example, nobody would ever say they were an air raid team, but they've got mesh. They've got all sorts of they've got wide cross. They've got all sorts of air raid, you know, concepts in their playbook. And, and so teams are starting to steal from other schools of thought. So we're getting this big blend in offensive concepts to the point where you look at recent Cowboys playbooks, you're seeing stick, you're seeing mesh, you're seeing stuff you normally associate with. West Coast or Air Raid or things like that. So I think, one, 
you're going to see a blend of stuff. It's not going to be the pure. They're not going to be running five eight five and nine eight nine every other play as much as I'd like them because mm-hmm. I think it'd be fun. Um, but I think you're also going to remember, you know, Saquon Barkley's role in this, right? You know, he's coming from an offensive background of Penn State and others where he's used to standing in the backfield next to his quarterback, not behind him. And so you want to do some things that are going to be beneficial for Saquon Barkley. And I do think that there's an opportunity here to also, you know, use some of that zone read type stuff. You know, it gets Barkley on a familiar footed. It's easy to block. It gives you some different options. You can use Jones's legs and his athleticism a bit. So I think they're going to find ways to get him back into the shotgun. You know, you can do a lot of the same stuff, you know, that you want to do in the downfield passing game from a shotgun alignment from the quarterback's position. And also being in that position pre-snap gives you an opportunity to see more of the field, which is why even guys like Peyton Manning wanted to be in the shotgun because they have that you know, better vantage point. So I think it's incumbent upon Garrett to do those things to get Jones more familiar, to help his quarterback, to help his running back in a sense. And so I think we will see more of a shotgun approach to whereas in years past, when he was an offensive coordinator first at Dallas before coming the head coach, it was more of an under center based offense. I think we're going to see a lot more shotgun than we're used to seeing from a Jason Garrett offense in the year ahead. And I think to his credit, Mark, Garrett did adapt in this sense with Dak Prescott in Dallas. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's a big, big takeaway for as he moves forward, Daniel Jones, especially because we know, I mean, at least according, at least in my mind, it might have been a nice quick boost in 20 in 2015 and 2016. But the decision, uh, for the Giants to kind of change everything with Eli Manning and, and have him go towards that Ben McAdoo quick hit uh, West Coast offense, I sort of believe kind of derailed his entire career. I mean, part of it is obviously he got older, the arm talent wasn't the same, and the speed of every everything slowed down a bit for him. But he was always a quarterback who fit, in my opinion, much better in in that Gilbride run and shoot style offense. Yeah. So I, I hope the same won't be done with 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 Jones. I really hope they don't. They still focus on his pluses. But like you said, there's reason to believe based on you know what Garrett's done uh you know with, with Dak Prescott over in Dallas that he can make those changes with with Daniel Jones and the Giants and yeah. the shotgun too I mean just having the team be in shotgun more might actually help with some of the protection issues especially if Nate Solder is still there because there were a lot of times when Daniel Jones would hit that back foot and right as he hits that back foot he's already getting drilled so yeah. being in shotgun could definitely assist if uh, Nate Solder ends up being a liability like he was in 2019 but I wanted to ask Mark about uh, another aspect of New York Giants offense, and that's the wide receiver core. And let's include Evan Ingram into this. Who do you feel is best when it comes to the short-term and the long-term fit with Daniel Jones? It's a great question. I'd love to say Evan Ingram here because I just love Evan Ingram. I did back to his days in college. Like I was just such a huge fan of his skill set, his game. And I think, you know, if he can stay healthy. No, he's – this seems to be, I don't want to say a golden era of tight ends – um, but we're certainly seeing the impact that a versatile all around mismatch type player at that position can have on opposing defenses, you know, because if you've got somebody that can run away from defensive backs, it makes it that much harder to defend them because then you're going to want to, you know, stay light. You want to stay in nickel and dime packages to try to cover those guys. But if they can then block in the run game, I mean, it just it gives you so many different options as an offense. And Look, I'm a dirty, filthy, disgusting Patriots fan, so I was like <laughs> spoiled with Rob Gronkowski, so I know what guys at that position can do, you know. But moving away from Ingram, I still think he can have a great benefit on this offense. I'm telling anybody that will listen to me to get themselves some Darius Slayton shares Ooh. this offseason. Like, 
I'm very excited about the connection between the two, between Jones and Slayton. We saw it early. We saw it that Cincinnati game, that sort of back shoulder throw and catch, you know, down the left sideline in that one. You know, we're seeing Slayton's speed. If this is going to be more of a vertical offense, like he certainly fits that mold more than I'd say a Sterling Shepard does, more than a Golden Tate does. Um, so I think if they are going to have that more downfield element and feel to and flavor to this offense, I, I think Darius Slayton's going to be the guy that Jones is going to look to when they push the ball downfield. And let's not forget, you know, we often see this with you know, a, a rookie quarterback that comes in that's running with the twos and the threes to start, and he's thrown to a guy and he gets that feel, and then suddenly they both become starters. You know, who's Jones going to look to on a third and seven to move the chains? He's not as familiar with a Sterling Shepard or a Golden Tate as he is Darius Slayton. You know, you see this play out in so many other cities, you know, around the NFL. You know, Jared Stidham this year, who's he going to be most comfortable throwing to? Julian Edelman, who he's barely known? Or maybe a Jacoby Myers, who was an undrafted rookie free agent that he was thrown to all training camp last year. You know, so you see these relationships build with, you know, you know, a guy that starts as a two, a receiver that starts as a two or a three, and he's finally getting to work with the ones. And now that quarterback comes up. So you see that camaraderie take shape when they're starters now. So Darius Slayton is a guy that I think is going to have a huge impact on Daniel Jones this year and beyond. Yeah, I think that's an excellent call there, Sco. I mean, anyone who's listened to this podcast knows how high we are in Darius Slayton, in addition to the fact that I think he is the best fit for, you know, the offense we're projecting Jason Garrett to run here. And like you said, I, I mean, you said it best, but we've, we've uh, and I completely agree with it, Sco. It's that rapport is probably the most, rapport between a quarterback and receiver is probably the most underrated factor when, a vet, when yeah. projecting receivers moving forward and quarterbacks moving forward, I think it's underrated in fantasy football. That's where I really, you know, hone in on it and zone in on it. And I think Scott Fishbowl 10, baby. Yeah. No, I'm going to be reaching for Darius Slayton way too early. I hope early you're not in my draft that. then. I can only hope you're not in my draft. No, draft. I don't think so. I'm in the, I'm in the like Tamaguchi division, which is like the like digital pets. Oh God. That's I, the one I'm in. I, I haven't already, checked which one I'm in yet. I'm to be honest. We've already got like the group DM on Twitter. Oh, like, it's wow. amazing. Like, I, love, already... I love that group DM. I don't know. I don't have my I don't have my group DM the, going yet. I don't have much the, going yet. Guys, the best part of this group DM already is I'm in a Thor Nystrom from Rotor World. He's in oh, my yeah. same division. And he wades into the group DM last night. He's like, I don't care if I finish 11th as long as I beat Schofield. <laughs> I was like, man, we're already – and he's been texting me nonstop the past 24 hours. Like, I'm just beating you. I'm just coming for you. So, yeah. <laughs> SFBX so is off to a great start, man. And for those who don't know uh, what the Scott Fishbowl is, is you, you need to do just literally type in Scott Fishbowl to Twitter and a million tweets will pop up. It's the greatest fantasy football contest out there, without a doubt, for a multitude of reasons. One, because of how cool the format is. The scoring is completely different than any other fantasy league. It's obviously super flex. Only, bad, only, only the basic leagues don't go super flex these days. It's not auction, but that would be tough to do. But besides that, everything else is awesome about it. And more importantly than anything else, Scott, what, the whole goal of it, the whole purpose of the Scott Fishbowl is, is really ends up being something that really is for, chari- for charity, various different charities that Scott Fishbowl, that Scott's uh, Fish is a part of and that you can donate to just from being a part of it or even if you're not playing in it and you didn't get the invite to the Fishbowl. So everyone should definitely look it up. It looks like all three of us are competing in it yeah. this year. So maybe one of us can take it home. <laughs> I've had some bad luck in the Scott Fishbowl. i got to be honest. Back to yeah. back. 
I, I had the number one pick. And one of those years I had Le'Veon Bell, the year he held out because the draft is oh. like in early July. And then, and then, and then who was it? I had uh, one of the season ender running backs in the other year. I forgot who it Probably was. Dalvin Cook, because I had him too in the league that no, I was. It wasn't Cook. It was it was somebody else. Just a season ender. Done. The DJ? The year's over. Who was it? it was David Johnson? Like it the was year David he Johnson. Went down? Yeah, it was David yeah. Johnson the year he went down. Yep. So. I so went I'm, early on Antonio Brown last year. Oof. Yeah, that was brutal. That Mark, I did the same thing. I, he was my second round pick. In the yeah, league. I, I think I got him in the third round, but I I had like I think the tenth or eleventh pick, so I got him like at the turn. Dude, it was straight up uh, Key and Peele meme sweating when all his antics started coming out of my I But then I was like, oh man, he's gonna be with the Pats. They're gonna be putting up points. This is gonna be great. And then he loses his mind. Yeah. Now I'm, this year I'm picking in the seventh spot and. I'm going to miss out on the top players. It's going to be rough, but it's so much fun. So much fun every year. Hopefully you get a diamond in the rough, but back to Hopefully. the New York New York Giants, Mark. So I'm curious about your thoughts on Daniel Jones's pocket presence. On one hand, he often gets knocked for holding the ball too long. On the other, he just doesn't really have that much time because the pocket just collapses on him. Where would you grade him heading into year two when it comes to his pocket presence and pocket poise? Yeah, Nick, it's over at USA Today. I'm doing a summer series called Metrics That Matter. And I'm looking at like one statistic or like one sort of cluster of stats for each team and like either why that's a huge concern or why they need to duplicate that again in 2020. Like, for example, for the Eagles, I looked at yardage after the catch. They were one of the worst teams in the league at average yardage yardage after the catch per reception, which is pretty bad if you're a West Coast offense, right? Because your whole offensive philosophy is yardage after the catch. But they were our bottom five team in yardage after the catch per reception. For the Giants, it was Daniel Jones and the 18 fumbles. And I know that seems like low-handed fruit, but it's a big area of concern, particularly when you look at it. He lost 11 of those, which also led the NFL in 11 lost fumbles, 18 fumbles to begin with. And on 10 of those lost fumbles, it led directly to offensive points for the other team, right? You had three scoops and scores, and then you had seven other occasions where their next drive by the the opposing offense resulted in points. The only time it didn't was that week one when he fumbled at the end of the game and Dak just had to take a knee twice to, to run out the clock. And so it's a concern. You know, he has to cut those down. Now, as you said, part of the time he hits that either third step on a three-step drop or a three-step gun drop, and he's got people on. Like, they need to do a better job at protecting him. Giants fans, we all sort of hope that Andrew Thomas, right, is going to be the guy at the right tackle spot. You know, you add two more picks and then an undrafted free agent, Shane Lemieux, Matt Part, you know, Kyle Murphy, the Rhode Island kid that could be either a tackle guard convert. You know, hopefully Will Hernandez looks to be the guy at left guard. Maybe you get one more year out of Nate Solder. You know, you hope you have the offensive line shored up. But he does need to get faster with the ball. Think back to that Arizona game, right? He gets sacked eight times. Some of them, yes, were on the offensive line. Some of them weren't. You know, some of them were opportunities where it was a three-step concept. The ball had to come out, and for one reason or another, he just didn't make a throw. Like, there was a third down play in that game where they had motion from left to right. He should have seen what the coverage was going to be, that it was a man coverage because they rotated the safeties. You should have known that flat route was going to be there. Pass the sticks, throw it, get it out of your hands, move the chains. And he didn't. He froze. He gets sacked, you know. And so when you're running that sort of three-step concept and you expect the ball to be out as an offensive lineman and it isn't, well, 
you've done your job. And, and so he has to get the ball out of his hands faster. That will certainly help cutting down on those fumbles. You know, part of it is that process and speed that needs to get faster. The game needs to slow down for him. And if that happens, he will cut down on those turnovers. But that is an area of concern. The one positive, though, is that he showed the willingness to fight in the pocket. He showed a willingness to hang in there and against pressure in the pocket. You look at his first start against Tampa Bay, he got roughed up in that game as well. But he made some anticipation throws under pressure, anticipation throws against the blitz. A lot of things that were really impressive in terms of handling the pocket. So he needs to get faster with his reads and get the ball out quicker. But he's shown the ability the willingness to stay and fight in the pocket, which is a big plus from a young quarterback. So there are both good and bad things going into 2020 for him when it comes to life in the pocket as an NFL quarterback. Yeah, I really love how you broke that down, Mark, because that's kind of the way I see it, too. I mean, versus, you know, the discussions we had earlier, how he is against zone coverage, his, you know, his post-snap processing and kind of him sticking with the predetermined. That, to me, is more black and white, and I think that's an, those are all areas where he's needs to improve or you know or he's never going to make the jump but in this regard in regard to the pocket presence it's a bit more of a double-edged sword for me because he showed while yes everything you said is true and there were multiple it wasn't just the arizona game there were plenty of times when me and nick went back and watched the all 20 all 20 all 20 was the case where he just needed to get the ball out quicker than he did and for whatever reason he didn't or for various reasons he didn't but at the same time what he did show, at the same, uh, then this is the double-edged sword side of it, is that poise in the pocket, that ability to stand in a muddied pocket and make the throw, the ability to you're you're not fully on you know on platform, you don't have a clean pocket, and yet you still deliver the ball right before getting hit. And we saw this plenty of times, I thought, uh, from Jones during his rookie season, and yet his accuracy, the ball placement, really didn't wane that much, despite not throwing from that balanced base, and despite you know throwing just before getting hit. So to me, that was at the same time a big plus for him. So it's really interesting uh, in regard where that will go. But I have a I have a couple more questions for you, Mark. If you, if you have a few more minutes that are a bit off a bit off the Giants' path. So I want to start with this one. I wanted to get your opinion on what went wrong, what's gone wrong, what happened with Josh Rosen? Because for me, when I evaluate him at UCLA, and this is why this in question is so important to me, because this is probably the quarterback evaluation I think I've gotten the most wrong since I started taking evaluating the position seriously. So for me, I saw QB with plus ball placement, who did an excellent job of staying in rhythm in the passing game, things I really find important, like you said, or like we've talked about. The processing I thought was there, the pocket presence, playing you know with trash around him at UCLA, terrible supporting gas in my opinion, was there too. So what happened with him at the, for the transition to the NFL? Is, this, is his career salvageable at all? And at the same time, were you high on him coming out of the draft, or did you kind of see this coming? Man... <laughs> I, I've missed on lots of quarterbacks. I mean, I had Dak Prescott as like QB 15 that year, okay? Um, I've missed on quarterbacks before. I'll miss on them again. I've gotten some right. Um, but the fact that I was high on Goff and Wentz and not Paxton Lynch, you know, the fact that I had Mahomes 2 and Watson 1 that year, you know, I've gotten some things right, but I've gotten some things wrong. 2018 is another year I had a big miss because I had Josh Rosen QB 1, okay? I was right there with you, Dan. Um, when I saw him at UCLA, I saw, I saw a guy that was your prototypical NFL pocket passer. As much as he wasn't a great athlete like some of the other guys in that draft class, like, say, a Baker or a Darnold or certainly a Lamar Jackson, I thought his footwork was good enough where he could have sort of that Tom Brady-like pocket presence where he 
he's going to run away from you, but he's going to do enough with his feet, with that tennis player background to move around. You know, I saw the willingness to make throws to all levels of the field under pressure. I saw the accuracy. I thought, like you said, you know, he was a guy with the, ment- the mental fortitude to play the position. He was going to come in and know everything and know offenses inside and out. And, man, if Josh Rosen isn't the perfect example of how we have such little information when we do this, I don't know who's more apt, who's more applicable. Because then we hear stories about him. He didn't know how to identify the Mike linebacker. Like, he just didn't know how to do it. Like, which is a kind of basic thing. But he had never done it before. And so Rosen's an example of, you know, we get. 6% 6% of the information. We can have all the all 22 we want. We can watch every single snap and we're still just scratching the surface of the information we have on these players. And so, look, I, I thought Rosen was going to be the guy. I had Rosen one, Baker two, Darnold three, Lamar four, and Allen five. And I missed on, you could probably make a case I missed on all those guys. Um, but that's all. No, let's that. not crown. Let's not crown Allen just yet, please. But, you know, but, but, but let's not forget that he, you can get the rankings and the the evaluation right, and it might not matter, you know, because yeah. where they end up is what's going to tell the tale. I mean, if Paxton Lynch goes in the second round and doesn't have these first round expectations and doesn't have that goofy little video of him like doing a little dance at the like rookie symposium that gets <laughs> memed to death, like maybe he has that opportunity to have like a Drew Locke scenario where. He can play when he's ready, and he doesn't have to get rushed into the field. And, and so, you know, Rosen, Lynch, other guys that, you know, seem to be busts, it might just be a circumstance where they just weren't in the right scenario. And Rosen goes to a team in Arizona that really had nothing. You know, they didn't have a ton of talent around him. And then new, you know, head coaching group comes in. They want their guy, you know, and then he goes to Miami and – you know, they're trying to figure things out, and he just wasn't ready to play. And when he was on the field, he struggled. Now they've got two. I mean, so it's just a bad set of circumstances, one after the other. I still think that there's an NFL quarterback inside Josh Rosen. You know, and there's still a small part of me that thinks, well, if Jared Stidham bombs, maybe he finds his way to New England and Josh Rosen gets his career resurrected there. But you know, this quarterback evaluation science, it's so hard. Even the ones that do it well miss most of the time because it's such a hard position to evaluate. And the landing spot and the coaching fit and scheme fit and all of that, they're all things that are out of your hands. And so you might have the evaluation nailed, but it goes south. And it's not because of anything you did. It's because of the way things ended up. Yeah, I think that's spot on. I really do. But at the same time, I I, I feel like I, this is the by far and away the evaluation I've been most wrong about ever, any position. And I think just watching kind of Ryan Fitzpatrick have find some kind of success there in that same offense when Rosen didn't, that's kind of soured me a bit on Rosen. I've still always held true to the put him on the Patriots. Please give him a right. shot to go there. Like that to me is just the per- – and I think the system there would also be perfect for his skill set too. It, it just, would be. It, so it just feels like perfect, but – you know, at this point, they haven't made the call for Rosen. That you got to imagine they could could have got him cheap during the draft. You know, if they had made a trade in the Patriots, notoriously, I don't know how many they had this year, but probably 17 day three picks or something in that range. Right. So I mean, I feel like 
the, the boat might have passed there. But I got one more for you, kind of same 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 idea. Um, and then I'll throw it just to see if Nick has anything else he wants to ask. But this is also non-Giants. You've studied this position, the quarterback position, I think more than <laughs> mostly anyone that I know, at least. So my question for you would be this. Based on your study— uh, of the quarterbacks and not necessarily what you read, what we hear, the rankings, the stats, all of that. Which quarterback are you high, mo- high, higher on than consensus, I would say, based on, you know, what people think on stats, all those things. And what quarterback are you lower on? So when you watch them actually on tape, because, again, I think a lot of people like to make these declarations about the quarterbacks in the NFL. But I'm not so sure everyone's watching all 32 quarterbacks in every week of play. I think it's really, really hard to evaluate this position just by looking at stats and, and, and things of that nature. So in your mind, from your evaluations, who would you be higher on than, than, than the consensus and then lower on? Yeah. And this is such a great question because, you know, you, you take it in so many different ways when you're thinking about quarterbacks and how you rank them, how you stack them. Um, a guy that I tend to be higher on, I think than consensus is Matthew Stafford. Um, I remember a couple of summers ago, it was John Ledyard who asked for everybody's like top five at the time. This was like two or three off seasons ago. And I had Stafford in there as five over Matt Ryan. And there are still to this day Atlanta Falcons fans that will needle me for that, <laughs> like to this day. But, you know, I did a show with Matt Walden last off season. He asked me, okay, th- let's say this is Tom Brady's last year. You could have any quarterback in the league step in to replace Tom Brady. And I said, Matthew Stafford. Like, I, I think when all is said and done, like we're going to look back on Stafford's career, assuming it ends up the way it sort of ends up. And we're going to be like, man, you know, th- this guy's career was wasted. Like, I think he was an extremely, he, and he is an extremely talented quarterback, but he's been playing through injuries. Like that team is, you know, Jeff Risden, for example, who covers the lines. He was just telling me tonight, he thinks it's the worst roster in the NFC, you know? So, yeah, I, I think Stafford is somebody I'm probably higher on the consensus. Somebody I'm probably before lower. before you jump into lower on, I did want to just add this, Mark, because I thought it was interesting just with regards to Stafford, because I completely agree with you on that. Not only you know what Jeff said, I think is spot on. Right now, they have one of the worst rosters, if not the worst, in the NFC. It's been that way for a while. This is a yeah. team that has had bad management, has had bad coaching, bad drafting. But what's interesting to me is. Before the injury last year, I thought Stafford was playing the best football of his career, and the stats showed it. And what was interesting most to me is they find I think they finally got it right, and it took them most of his entire career. It took them all the way until last year to do this, but if you look at his yard, his ADOT, his average depth of target, it shot up from, yeah. from anything else he had had his whole career. This is the type of quarterback he should have been his whole career. This is the kind of offense he should have been playing in, one where he can really use that arm talent uh, more, more than just, you know, with, with Jim Bob Cooter it wasn't there and all the coordinators before him, the, the revolving door of coordinators. So I really think you're right. When we look back, it will be one of the most wasted careers of any uh, quarterback. Yeah, in, in terms of guys that I might be lower on, I mean – let me preface it with this. You're talking to a card carry member of the quarterback union, okay? Like <laughs> every draft class, I say that there should be 32 first-round quarterbacks right? because I love all of them, okay? Uh, but guys that I'm probably lower on, I think Garoppolo is on that list. Like I, I, I think that there are times that Jimmy Garoppolo is teaching tape. I think he has some of the cleanest mechanics and perhaps the cleanest release in the league. Um, but I still have reservations about him you know, being more than, say, quarterback purgatory. 
You know, you look at what Kyle Shanahan does to help him, to yeah. give him information before the snap, where they throw so much out of 21 personnel, so you're throwing against base defenses, so much off of play action, so many creative designs. No, interestingly enough, guys, I, I just got done studying Trey Lance. It's the same offense. Like, it's it's the same offense at NDSU to the point where I just did a show again with Matt Waldman on Trey Lance, and I was like, you could drop Trey Lance at the San Francisco right now, and they'd be good. Like so that tells you a bit about Trey Lance. It tells you a bit about Jimmy Garoppolo. So I think a guy that I'm probably lower on than you know consensus is Garoppolo. Yeah, I think that's also a spot on call. I mean, at least for, as far as what I see, I think he, like you said, he's helped a lot by not only Shanahan in that offense, really a very good offensive line there in San Francisco, only getting better in my opinion with Trent Williams. I know no no knock on Joe Staley, but I'm he, I, I'm very high on Trent Williams. I, I always have been. I've always kind of thought he's been a little bit underrated. Some people kind of talk of it, about him more as like a top 10 tackle. I think when he's when he's healthy and playing, he might be the best in the NFL. Um but with regards to with regards to Garoppolo or regards to Trey Lance actually also, I think that's a really interesting point because, you know, if they find themselves in position. You know they flirted with Brady this offseason, with the idea of Brady this offseason. It would be really interesting if they found themselves in a position to trade up for, for, for Lance next year because they can get out of Garoppolo's contract, I believe, next offseason with, with little cap hit, with a with a small dead cap hit. So that's just something interesting to keep in mind. Nick, do you have anything else specific you wanted to uh, ask Mark while we have him? Hey, Mark, this is a silly question, but if week one goes down, who's starting for the Chicago Bears, Trubisky or Mr. Nick Foles? Yeah, Nick. I mean, the way I look at it, and Kiss and I, we were just talking about this. <laughs> I'm sure, you guys. Because um, look, we just have been destroying mediocre Mitch for like the past like year or so <laughs> on the show together. But I think he still starts week one, you know. But here's the thing: they go to Detroit for week one, as it's set right now. Who knows? COVID nineteen and stuff might change things. But they go to Detroit week one. They host the Giants week two then at Atlanta, and then they host the Colts on week four, okay? you got to think that Detroit, if that Detroit game, if Mediocre Mitch is the starter, is a must-win game, right? Like, it's a division game. Detroit Lions look bad right now. You know, if they can't beat Detroit, they're going to have some trouble, you know? How long is the Mitch Trubisky leash? And so I really say the over-under on Foles is three and a half games, and I'm probably taking the under. Because I think Trubisky gets the week one start, but if they have any bumps along the way, week one, week two, week three, they're going to have a quick hook because Matt Nagy's coaching for his job. Ryan Pace, is he's on a hot seat as well because he's the guy that passed on Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson to trade up to two to get this guy. So... Yeah, I think Trubisky's the week one starter, but I'm taking the under on three and a half games for Nick Foles. And I'm taking that under too, Mark, And I'm, but I'm praying that it's a little bit over. I You're praying it's three, right? Yeah. You're praying it's three. So, I would so much rather see Mitchell Trubisky, who, by the way, somehow found a way. This is just gives you an idea of how bad the Giants' defense was last year. He almost threw for 300 yards against the Giants in cold, yeah. windy cold Chicago. Cold, like, yeah. It, it was, was just, just – it was – it was target the slot. It was just target uh, Ballantyne yes. slot, and literally, I felt bad for Corey Ballantyne. There was a one, there was a stretch where it was like six consecutive passes where Trubisky threw to Allen Robinson in the slot, and the Giants never adjusted to it. 
And that's naggy. That's all. I mean, like, yeah. I, I think it's going to be the, the COVID short shortened offseason is pretty much the only reason I think Mitch will be the starter uh, early in the season. But you make a great point that it's literally a must win game against Detroit. They cannot if they lose the game against Detroit, that there's no turning back from that, I think. Um, and Foles is definitely to me, definitely the better fit for that offense. But, you know, time will tell. Anyway, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us. This was unbelievable. This was this was my favorite interview we've done all off season, and I really appreciate it. But I just wanted to take some time before we sign off to let everybody know where they can follow both your work, your published work, and then where they can follow your takes on Twitter. Oh, guys, thanks for having me. This was a blast. Um, anytime you want to talk quarterbacks, Daniel Jones, whatever, um, you know where to find me. Um, the easiest way to follow me is on Twitter at Mark Schofield. Um, do work for places like SB Nation, where I'm at Pat's Pulpit, Big Blue View, uh, Bleeding Green Nation with the with the QB Factory of Michael Kiss, um, Matt Waldman's RSP, MattWaldmanRSP.com, and of course USA Today Touchdown Wire, where I'm writing over there as well. And we mentioned the Scott Fishbowl, SFB Potathon Kids, the guys over there, they do a 24 hour live event. It starts July 5th. It runs from like you know 8 p.m. July 5th to the following 8 p.m. the 6th. They're all on air 24 hours straight. They're raising money for FantasyCares.net. I'm gonna be on I think the 9 a.m. hour that Monday the 6th. Um, it's like my third year doing this with those guys. Um, you know check it out. You can follow that show at SFB Potathon. All sort of one word there. It's a fun show. 24 hours. It like culminates with the start of the draft. Um, so it, it's really a fun time. It's a fun event and raises money for charity. So check that out. But the easy, easiest way again is to follow me on Twitter at Mark Schofield. Yep. And definitely if you guys enjoyed this podcast, give him a follow on Twitter. You're not going to be disappointed. I can promise you that. Uh, thanks again, Mark, for joining the show and we really appreciate it. And hope you have a, re- a good rest of your off season. Hopefully this thing gets going at some point sooner than later. And by this thing, I mean the NFL season. Yeah. yeah take care, buddy. <laughs> Take guys, take care. Thanks so much for having me. And hopefully we do get some football in the fall, man, because, you know, I, I think we're all going to be sad if we don't. So <laughs> wear your masks, everybody. Wear your masks. All right. Thanks a lot again, Mark. Have a good one. Thanks, guys. All right, Nick, that was an excellent, excellent interview with Mark. I'm really happy he found the time to join us on the show. And for those who don't know, by the way, the Big Blue Banther podcast, as you know it and love it today, would not be possible if not for Mark Schofield last Summer around this time in August, or I guess it was a little bit later. It was in August. I was a lot was changing in my life. I was on a 14 day long trip uh, on the west coast of the United States with some friends, hiking in uh, Glacier Glacier Park in Montana, uh, and then over in Banff, um, and then finally Rocky Mountain in Denver with my brother. But during that time, Nick Turchin, who used to be the co host of the podcast, told me, uh, you know, sent me a message out of the blue and let me know that. A really, really great opportunity came about for him, and you guys probably know it now from following him on Twitter. He's working uh, as a coach with the Princeton football team, but I was at a crossroads with Big Blue Panther Podcast. I didn't really have anyone in mind at the time who could fit this exact role. I knew I needed somebody like Nick, um, Nick Turchin, who understood the game better than I did from uh, from a film analyst, uh, you know, from a film standpoint. And Mark put me, and I reached out to a bunch of different people, including Mark, and he put me in contact with Nick, who, in my opinion, and this is no shot to Nick Turchin because he's also agreed with me that agreed with me on this after we've discussed it since, is really the perfect fit for this podcast. A little bit even better fit than than maybe Nick and even myself because Nick Filato, our now my now co-host and the now co-host of the Big Blue Panda podcast, 
is not only just somebody who's been through, uh, you know, schooling on how to watch game tape and who's been to the senior bowl and who's evaluated the game tape. He's also someone who's a fan of this football team. And I think it's really, really important for this podcast to have two actual fans of the team, um, really diehard fans who've been watching the team their whole life, who understand the ins and outs of this team. And so thank you to Mark, because this podcast would be nothing without him. Uh, this podcast leaves that stands today would be nothing without him, Nick. So really happy to have you on and, 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 and a big shout out to Mark. Oh, thank you so much, man. And I remember that when uh, Mark uh, DM'd me and he asked if I was interested in this opportunity. And I was at a point where I was looking to, like, I don't, I took a little step back from from writing because I was writing a lot for Inside the Pylon back then. I took a little step back and I was looking to get back into it. And once I heard about this opportunity, I remember you and I called each other and we discussed it, and it was it was really exciting. So I'm just glad that it all worked out and. Uh, seems like it's going great and you know i have no complaints man because i love talking football i love talking about the giants and i love giving objective analysis on a team that i do love yeah no doubt i think we not only nailed it with the pod but you know also started an excellent friendship that i think will develop based on the pod so anyway let's talk about the interview let's talk about daniel jones let's talk about what we discussed with mark and then your overall opinions what was kind of your biggest takeaway from what mark uh, from what Mark talked about. And I know you've also done some recent charting on Jones, so I maybe you want to dive into that as well. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack with what Mark uh, expounded upon, but I did like how we touched on the zone coverage flaws. I mean, you brought it up initially, and I think it was it's evident when you go back and watch Daniel Jones's tape because when you link what he did at Duke that Mark was talking about, there's just one, you know, one read, simple read, get the ball out of your hands quickly. Pat Shermer, we've made this connection before, had a similar type of mindset for Daniel Jones. Let's get the ball out of his hand. The protection is not that good. Let's make these simple reads. But what happens when those reads don't work out? I saw with Daniel Jones, I saw a big issue when those reads didn't work out that first read when it was zone coverage, because if it was man coverage, he could trust his receiver. If he knew where the one-on-one matchups was from his pre-snap reads. And after he sees the safety roll, he knows where that one-on-one matchup is. So what does he do? He throws the ball. He did that a lot on slot verticals. He did that a lot up the sidelines of Darius Slayton. Those slot verticals were two tight ends and were two golden Tate most of the time, sometimes to Sterling Shepard on double moves. So when it was man coverage, we saw that, but that zone coverage, we kind of see him have that just double clutch sometimes or just kind of be a little bit hesitant to really let that ball go. And you can't do that when your offensive line isn't that great. You can't really even do that when your offensive line is really good. And there are times where Daniel Jones, you see him go to his first read, lock on. He's like, oh, crap, that's not there. And he transitions to his second and his third, and he starts getting a little bit of happy feet, like you mentioned, starts flowing away from the from the the rush that he can see, that he can perceive, but then he puts himself into another position where there's another rusher coming because you can't hold on to the ball for, you know, three, four seconds when your offensive line isn't that great. And it's something that Jones did. And a lot of these interceptions, man, I have all all 12 of them right here. I had three of them as man, as man coverage. Now, granted, zone coverage isn't like Madden zone coverage where it's just like, oh, well, you know what? We're all just going to go to our designated zone. Now, there's so many calls that you can put yes. onto a defense, like meg calls. That means man everywhere he goes. So you sign the number one receiver with a meg call. That means wherever that guy goes, you're a lockdown corner. So you're going to follow him wherever. And the zone coverage is going to adapt around you. There's a lot of defenses that just do reads where the defense is going to read what the quarterback does and they'll adjust from that, especially when it comes to like hot uh, blitzes and stuff like that, like they'll blitz and it's called hot coverage and hot coverage. You're going to have like a six man pressure package. And those people who are going to play those zones are going to basically base their zone off of what the quarterback does. So it can get really complex. It's definitely not as simple as, you know, what Madden kind of portrays it as, but three of the interceptions were man coverage. The one was, it seemed a like cover one safety. He threw it against Washington. The safety kind of jumped 
in the first Washington matchup and undercut it for an interception. The other one was another cover one safety, and that was the one against New England where the ball was tipped. The pass was kind of behind. I think it was Stefan Gilmore tipped it up in the air, and the safety ended up intercepting it. And the other one was in the snow where it seemed like it was a, a too high and the cornerback was playing trail it was Tremont Williams. And he threw the pass. And right as he threw the pass, Tremont Williams turned around and the ball just hit Tremont Williams in the chest playing trail technique on what looked like two man under. So those are his man coverage interceptions. But all the other ones were zone. And it seemed like he had that just, he just was a little bit confused and didn't really necessarily trust himself as much as he did when he was throwing against man coverage. And the times that he did, he would try to fit the ball into a really tight window in zone. Sometimes it'll work out, but then there was like the Arizona game where it was easily picked off by the two underneath cover three defenders. So that's definitely something that Mark brought up that we've kind of alluded to throughout the year that Daniel has struggled with something. It's just good that I feel Mark thinks that he can definitely grow from this and he can learn from it. And hopefully he carries that into his second year. Yeah, no doubt, Nick. And even just breaking those down a little bit further, I mean, that Washington interception in the first Redskins game, that was just a really excellent play by the safety there. I remember it vividly. And then you look at the other the other balls there. The tip ball, I, you know, hard to blame him a little bit on that, but the tough coverage was tight. And then we have the snow interception. So really, I think he's still doing an excellent job against man. It's really just zone he's having a lot of trouble with. And if that doesn't improve, it, it's going to be tough for him. I do believe that. I think... I'm also a, t- a tiny bit worried about this COVID-shortened season going to a new offensive coordinator, somebody who, again, is going to likely have him do, even if he's going to cater the system to Daniel Jones, Garrett's going to have more of these five- and seven-step drop plays. And we're already talking about a quarterback who's struggling with one- and three-step drops against zone coverage. How is that going to be You know, when, when now we have five- and seven-step drops? So I'm a little bit worried. i got to be honest. I don't think there's going to be as many seven-step drops. Sure, though, maybe not to seven. Be honest. Yeah, but there might be some more five-step when he's under center. But I also like how Mark brought up the shotgun. I do feel that Garrett will adjust. Jason yeah. Garrett is no dum-dum. He understands football, and especially if you have those protection issues, you're going to want to put them in shotgun like I alluded to as well. So I think that's going to help him. That may even help him with recognizing zone coverage. It takes that step out. He'll just receive the snap, you know, go back into his one-two step bounce on his feet, be able to look around and do those kind of things. But and another thing that he brought up too, which is the bugaboo when it comes to Daniel Jones, and that is the fumbles. And I, I went through and I watched all the fumbles that he committed. Uh, there were a couple that were just like drop snaps and stuff like that, poor snaps. But a lot of them can be attributed to Daniel Jones. There were a few where he did hit the back foot and he got hit. But there were a couple where you could blame probably Jones for holding on to the football a little bit too much, but it was also the offensive line should have held up. So it's basically a team effort, but it's definitely a, it seemed like last year, even the coordinators knew how to attack that offensive line, knew how to manipulate the protections, even six man protections. There were a couple sacks in that Arizona game where it was a six man protection. They rushed five and they would rush four sometimes and they would get there. They would either get a sack and one of them, I want to say they even got the fumble strip because Evan Ingram was tasked to block Chandler Jones one on one and stuff like that. And that's, that's just great coaching right there. It's it's something that you don't want, but defensive coordinators are able to kind of scheme around that, and that happened too. That led to a fumble. There was a five-man pressure where there was a bunch of stunts and twists. No one acknowledged the blitzing cornerback, and it was Patrick Peterson. And Patrick Peterson ran. No one saw him. No one on the end. No, not Daniel Jones because it was from his blind side, and he got he gets killed. And then he obviously fumbled the football. Now is that to blame DJ? Should he have recognized it? It's kind of hard to say. His blind side. I'm sure there were other contingency plans built into the offense that must have. Like somebody on the end, that tight end that was blocking, who was on a on a base end, maybe he should have called something out to call that hot, get rid of the football, and it was just never picked up. So there was a lot of things like that, too, when it comes to his fumbles. But it's something that I think can be corrected, 
But the one thing I will say is when he's running in space, which he's had like three or four fumbles like that, when he's running in space, he has to tuck that ball away or he has to get down because there were a couple fumbles where it's just like, bro, what are you doing, man? You just ran into someone's ass and just dropped the football. Like you have to be stronger when it comes to that kind of stuff. I mean, and we're not going as far as a butt fumble. We've been calling these butt fumbles, would we? <laughs> no, not butt fumbles, but there was a week one against, uh, I think it was Leighton Vander, it might have been Vander Esch or maybe Jeff Heath. He was on the sidelines. Daniel Jones r- rushed out and basically just like stuck. It was like a hip check. He like stuck his hip into Jones when another linebacker was pursuing him. And they kind of both made contact and Jones just caught the football up. And that was in week one when he only played, what, like 10 snaps or whatever. Yeah, it, it's an issue. I mean, let's let's. I'm gonna kind of unpack these two, both those points you made because I want to back up and I don't want to miss the shotgun part as well. But let's just touch on the fumbles first. This is an issue that dates back to Duke. Before his rookie season, I remember sitting in the Manhattan office and when our office was still open at CBS Sports and talking with my uh, not my boss, well, with my boss, my boss's boss, and then someone else who's not unrelated but also a bit kind of a bigger guy at CBS. I won't throw any names out here, but we we looked up. What well, the point is of this is that we looked up Jones's fumbles at Duke, and there was an issue there. There was a serious issue with fumbles at Duke. I think it was 17 in his career, nine loss. I think those are the numbers I remember. Um, this would be something I looked up, you know, over a year ago, but I think those are the numbers that stood out. Um, and we were talking about it because this was a problem for him in the preseason as well. And then it carries over the regular season. So this is a real issue. This is not something we can sweep under the rug. Now, having said that, there's reason to believe this will improve a lot more than I believe his ability to process post-snap will improve. And no offense, and I hope he does, I really do, but I believe that could be the Achilles kill on his career. If he doesn't work out, I think it will 100% be because he doesn't process post-snap as well as the other quarterbacks. Again, I put this on a pedestal of how important it is to process post-snap. Like Mark said, you look at Drew Bra- uh, um, sorry, Tom Brady and Drew Brees, their arm talent is falling off. They don't have they don't, they're nowhere near what they used to work with arm talent wise. They can't move as well in the pocket. There's so many Breeze can't even throw down field at this point in his career. And it doesn't matter because they're like robots when it comes to processing what the safeties are doing post snap. When it comes to getting rid of the football on time, in rhythm, and with good ball placement where it's supposed to be, not where you think it's supposed to be based on what you determine for the snap. But anyway, when it comes to fumbling, a lot of quarterbacks improve on fumbling from the rookie season. There's great stats out there that show this. I, sh- I wish I had them in front of me. I'll do I'll do everyone the service of looking this up after the pod and getting back to everyone. But there are tons of quarterbacks who have improved this. Lamar Jackson's a great example of the fumbles in his first year versus the fumbles last year. But there are plenty of examples. And Daniel Jones is taking the right steps, I think. He's working with his trainers all season to add bulk and to work on his fumbling problems. He's holding a ball and having people swat at it. Doing little things like that to kind of improve and give himself a better chance of improving on the fumbles. So that, I think, is going well. But I think one other thing that the Giants can do to help Jones transition to a new offense, to help get the best out of him, is to use more RPO out of the shotgun. And they did a really good job of that last year. When they ran RPO out of the gun last year, Jones was, again, one of the more effective quarterbacks in the NFL. But they just didn't run it that often. They need to run that more. I believe it's something that Jason Garrett will incorporate, and I hope he does. Because the RPO game was another example of what I liked, you know, a film I liked when I watched, when I watched Jones. RPOs are important too because obviously it's the run pass option so that's going to also give a little bit of maneuverability for the rushing game if you keep hitting an RPO and we saw this with the Giants especially anybody who has game pass right now go to the game pass watch the jet game watch how Greg Williams used those linebackers to attack run fits 
It's literally before the ball was even handed in the mesh point, Harvey Lange and, and linebackers like that were shooting the gaps, beating offensive linemen, and there was nowhere for Saquon Barkley to go. And that's one reason why he had one rushing yard on like 13 attempts in that game. If you have an RPO game and you implement that and every time you go to the mesh point and you see the linebacker shoot, what do you do? Well, a little quick slant to Evan Ingram, a little quick slant to drag to Golden Tate. And guess what? It's going to keep those linebackers honest, and that's going to help the running game. So I really like that call with the RPOs. Yeah, I really hope they incorporate that. And again, remember, one more reason, one more benefit of the Giants running more shotgun next year, in addition to what it does for Jones, who's a much better quarterback in the gun. Barkley was running out of the gun almost predominantly at Penn State, where he was having his most success. Barkley also may be a better runner out of the gun as well. That's totally in the realm of possibility as well. So I really hope Jason Garrett gets the memo looks at the tape, and adjusts. And I think he will. I really do have faith in that. It could take some time because, again, it, that, that week one is going to be such a different week one than normal with this COVID-shortened offseason. It really is. Even if they get to camp on time, which I'm extremely skeptical about, they've already canceled the Hall of Fame game. I personally think the start of the regular season will be pushed back at this point. But even if they do get to camp on time, it's still they missed all of the spring install. So so we'll have to see what happens there. But anything else you wanted to touch on regarding Jones, the quarterback position, the offense, Nick? I guess the fumbles. One thing I would like to say is because uh, Nate Solder's name gets brought up uh, as somewhat of a scapegoat to uh, allow Daniel Jones to kind of walk away from it blame free. And there's small, I would say there's, there's merit to that argument, but at the same time, this is a team game. There are times where, like I said before, Jones holds on the ball a little bit too long, but uh Solder, he was to blame. You could, you could say for two of the reps against Shaq Barrett in Tampa Bay. Again, Jones held the ball long on one of them a little bit too uh, much, but it was pretty bad. He also had a really bad one against Detroit, with Trey Flowers, that was one that really comes to mind. Uh, there was one against Arizona where he got beat around the edge by Chandler Jones, and there was interior pressure that pushed uh, Jones, Daniel Jones, that is, out of the pocket and right to Chandler Jones, forcing a fumble. And there was also one with Khalil Mack around the edge against Chicago that was really, really bad. And then there was the one that's a little bit of an outlier because it's not the name of Khalil Mack or some of these other guys that we're talking about, but Dorrance Armstrong uh, beat Solder really bad around the edge against Dallas too. So Solder definitely does not help the problem. That's not, you know, groundbreaking news whatsoever, but I, it's still Daniel Jones needs to have a better presence of mind to tuck that ball away, especially when he's running in space and also get rid of it a little bit faster, which I, we hope Mark says it is possible that he could develop in year two. But again, that truncated off season, Dan, it, uh, gives me some worry. Yeah. I mean, that's the case for Jones. Those are the two issues. If you want to take away one thing from this podcast, it's that we need to see Jones get a lot better when it comes to the fumbles and get a lot better when it comes to his post snap processing, not relying so much on what he sees before the snap and what he expects to see. And more so relying on, you know, doing a better job of understanding what the, what it means when these safeties, you know, change, change things up post snap and when they rotate in a different way. So we'll see what happens, but I I do have hope because he's a really smart guy. We know that we know he's dedicated to this too. And those two factors are super important when it comes to overcoming, you know, the mental processing side of this game. And patience is going to be the key for that because we mentioned Tom Brady and Drew Brees. They've seen everything that a defense can throw at them. Reps is the key when it comes to this. Daniel Jones needs to get those reps, but I think you have to be somewhat patient too. And I don't want to give the guy a pass, but this is his, like Mark said, third offense in three years, second in this weird offseason, this strange offseason. It's just getting to master this Jason Garrett offense. So reading 
pre-snap to post-snap, something that he didn't really have to do in college, that he's doing in another system now in his second year in the NFL, there can definitely be some speed bumps there. So there might have to be a little bit of patience as well. Yeah, there's going to have to be patience. We're going to, you know, like I said on the show, we're talking about Steelers, who I think is going to be the best, who I think actually they're going to have the best, the best defense is in the, the Pittsburgh Steelers. Then the San Francisco, or no, sorry, then the Bears, who I think are one of the best defenses, especially at home, and that will be in Chicago. And then the 49ers, who were the best defense last year. That's how, that's how things open up for Daniel Jones in a new system with a truncated offseason. So patience is going to be important. There's going to be plenty of people jumping down his throat immediately. There's going to be articles written by, by you know, uh, the guy from the Post. I forgot his name or what, what site he writes for, Pat Leonard. There's going to be guys like that jumping down his throat, calling for him to be benched or calling for the Giants to, you know, start looking at the 2021 quarterback prospects, uh, you know, who they should be interested in. It's going to happen right away uh, with those games. But if he somehow finds a way to play well in those three games, Nick, it's gonna you're gonna start to be, think like, okay, maybe he can do this. Maybe the Giants are gonna get better faster than we thought because it's really a tough test for him to start the season. Yeah, he's gonna have to do so much more than what a normal quarterback will have to do to get that kind of national recognition because his name is Daniel Jones and no one wants to have egg on their face for kind of crapping on him uh, throughout the pre-draft process and mocking Gettleman when Gettleman selected him. So he has to do a lot more than what others do. I, I can't remember who it was. It might have been actually Colin Coward who said if if Joe Burrow has Daniel Jones' number, he's gonna run away with the rookie of the year. And I actually think I don't agree with Coward on everything, but I think that's a pretty good statement to be honest, and I think it's pretty accurate. Yeah, I mean, it's fair. He almost broke Baker Mayfield's rookie passing touchdown record despite missing multiple games with an injury. But to be fair, the fumbles did change games. I mean, the, not just the fumbles. The combined fumbles and interceptions changed games, changed the outcomes of games. Those, if the turnover rate stayed at that level his whole career, which God forbid, and hope we hope it won't, and we doubt it will, but if somehow it did, he would not be a good quarterback. You're not a good quarterback when you're turning the ball over that often. So, so I, I think, you know, if Burrow turns the ball over that many times, I don't know for sure if we'll get that. But, but yeah, I can, totally, I can totally get on board with that. All right, guys, that's all we have for today. We really hope you enjoyed this deep dive into Daniel Jones. Um, if you enjoy the show and you're new to the show, do us a favor. Please rate, review, subscribe, and download those four things on iTunes. Tell your friends and family. And, and like I said, give us a shout-out. Give us a follow on Twitter. Uh, and on Instagram. By now, you know where to find us on Twitter. But on Instagram, in case you missed it, that's NY Big Blue Banter. All right, guys, we'll talk to you soon and have a great rest of your week.